0: Sometimes, we want people to be different than they were. For years, I heard that Fred Rogers wore a sweater to cover up his Vietnam tattoos, where, allegedly, he killed over 100 men. I've heard about Lady Gaga being transgender. I've heard about Megan Fox being transgender. Grace Jones being a man. Jamie Lee Curtis being a hermaphrodite. I guess some of us just get fixed on gender. Stories seem to circulate about those that are in the limelight. And the bigger the celebrity, the more stories there seem to be about them. Even when there's no story at all, we can't help but just make one up. Maybe it's our love for that celebrity, or maybe it's our hate. Maybe we just refuse to believe the truth. Instead, we bend it, exaggerate it, and distort it until it no longer resembles the real story. Maybe it's some sort of bizarre Twilight Zone episode that we're all just living in. Why do we believe in this need to create a mythology around someone who lived a real life and an exceptional life at that? Why do we need to distort the reality of someone who I loved, Walt Disney? Maybe this is a Twilight Zone episode. Rod Sterling once said, the worst aspect of our time is prejudice. Maybe this is a story about that. My name is Josh Taylor and you're listening to the inaugural episode of my podcast, Modern Mouse. A look into the less magical side of life through the most magical lens I know, The Walt Disney Company. In this episode, we'll be looking into the legacy and mythology of Walt Disney. Founding his company in 1923 and dying in 1966, he gave the world much more than anyone could have anticipated. He gave us classic characters, familiar movies, theme parks, and even plans for a brighter future. But for whatever reason, those aren't the stories people are telling. And somewhere along the way, the truth got lost. Our story begins in 2014. It's awards season in Hollywood, and the film Saving Mr. Banks has been nominated for several awards. If you're unfamiliar with the film, it's a fictionalized version of how Walt Disney convinced author P.L. Travers to use her character Mary Poppins. The movie stars Tom Hanks as Walt Disney and Emma Thompson as Travers. And Paul Giamatti plays a pretty lovable chauffeur. I mean, who wouldn't want Paul Giamatti to show them around classic Hollywood, right? Anyways, due to Tom Hanks being as charming and lovable as he is, his portrayal of Walt Disney comes off really warm, and he inevitably becomes the person you hope wins in the battle of the rights to Mary Poppins.
1: Oh my dear gal, you can't imagine how
2: excited I am to finally meet you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's an
1: honor. Oh Walt, you
0: gotta
2: call me
1: Walt. Mr. Dizzy was an old man, isn't that right, Doc? Absolutely, Walt. Come here,
0: here. Tommy. Emma Thompson would be nominated for Best Actress at the Golden Globes and the Screen Actors Guild Awards for her portrayal of Pamela Travers. But by the end of that award season, Emma Thompson wasn't the person everyone was talking about. When it came to saving Mr. Banks. On January
2: 7th, Streep set off controversy during her National Board of Review presentation when she dubbed Walt a bigot and called him a racist, sexist, and supporter of anti-Semitism. Points which have been disputed to one degree or another by some historians and people who knew the man.
0: Meryl Streep's comments about Walt Disney weren't new to Hollywood. Walt Disney's reputation had come under scrutiny shortly after his death in December 1966, but Streep's comments cast a shadow on a younger generation that grew up watching The Lion King or Lilo and Stitch. As part of her speech against the late Walt Disney, Streep referenced a rejection letter received by a woman named Mary Ford from Arkansas, who applied for a job at Walt Disney Animation in 1938. The letter typed out is on an off-white stationery, complete with a Snow White and Seven Dwarves header. Snow White had come out the year prior in 1937, and with the box office success of that film, we can assume that many people, men and women, were looking to take their artistic skills to the then-biggest animation studio in Hollywood. The letter reads like this.
1: Dear Miss Ford, your letter of recent date has been received in the inking and painting department for reply. Women do not do any of the creative work in connection with preparing the cartoons for the screen, as that task is performed entirely by young men. For this reason, girls are not considered for the training school. The only work open to women consists of tracing the characters on clear celluloid sheets with India ink and then Filling in the tracing on the reverse side with paint according to directions. In order to apply for a position as inker or painter, it is necessary that one appear at the studio. Bringing samples of pen and ink and watercolor work. It would not be advisable to come to Hollywood with the above specifically in view as there are really very few openings in comparison with the number of girls who apply. Yours very truly, Walt Disney Productions, LTD.
0: That's heartbreaking, but realistic for the time period. Remember, this rejection letter was received in 1938. Women and men had social roles to play, and those roles were even regulated by the U.S. government. During the 1930s, 26 of the 50 U.S. states prohibited the employment of married women. The 1932 Federal Economy Act banned more than one person from a household to work for the government, assuring men a job in government over women. President Roosevelt's New Deal agencies, which allowed the US to get out of the Great Depression and create new jobs, employed mostly men as it was believed that women couldn't handle manual labor and were instead placed into jobs like sewing. When we hold Walt Disney to a certain standard, we have to hold him to the standard of his time, and not of ours. Walt Disney wasn't an all-powerful being whose morals were more pure than his own ego. He was human, and he lived in a society that influenced his bias and prejudice. By the way, another story I hear all the time about Walt Disney is that he was a racist, and a lot of that scrutiny comes from his depiction of the slave and owner relationship of a post-Civil War confederacy in his 1946 film, Song of the South.
1: To be sure, just like Bear Rabbit when he took and stuck his foot into something he don't know nothing about and ain't had no business mixing up with him in the first place. Ain't you never heard that tale? Not yet, Uncle Remus. Oh, me, i gracious. I sure oughta told you about that.
0: song of the south was a controversial film even in its time walter francis white secretary of the naacp the national association for the advancement of colored people spoke out to both praise the film for its technical marvel and condemn the film for its depiction of a happy-go-lucky relationship between former slave uncle remus and the White favor family. Was Walt and his studio in the wrong to portray the classic Uncle Remus stories in this manner? Perhaps they were. But to make up for it, Walt did push for James Baskett, the actor who portrayed Uncle Remus, to get an honorary Academy Award for his performance. This was completely unheard of. In 1940, Hattie McDaniel was the first ever African American to win an Academy Award for her portrayal of Mammy in Gone with the Wind. But her win came with many stipulations. She had to sit at a certain table near the back of the room, and she was to be the only African American at the awards show because the hotel where the awards were taking place at had a strict segregation policy against Blacks. James Baskett would become the second person of color to ever receive an Academy Award, something that Walt Disney actually pulled off. Does that negate the poor depictions from Song of the South? I don't think so. But it does give hope to a belief that Walt Disney wasn't a racist. I mean, this was 17 years before Martin Luther King Jr. marched on Washington and gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. It was a different time, and once again, societal norms were just different. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream
1: that one day…
0: Is it possible to combat these rumors and myths? In 2009 Walt Disney's daughter Diane and her husband Ron Miller opened the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, trying to separate the man from the company. I had the pleasure to visit this museum and it's pretty impressive.
3: Hi, I'm Keith Gluck and I am a writer and Disney historian. Uh, I write for several different websites including the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco. And I run my own site called theDisneyProject.com.
0: Keith has been a part of the Walt Disney Family Museum for years, and we've had plenty of discussions about the place, how it came to be, and how it's trying to showcase Walt Disney's humanity over the mythology.
3: Uh, I feel like they did uh, the creative team did an outstanding job, uh, like putting together uh, just all of like Walt's collective works throughout his life, and and gathering, you know. Some of his possessions and uh, some of the things that the company had done throughout his lifetime, just you know, to showcase his life and his legacy. But additionally, Diane wanted to be really honest uh, about like you know his life, and you know she didn't shy away from some of the tougher facts. Like there's a whole section of the museum devoted to the animator strike, and you know there's there's video um, like old film reels, and there's like you know uh, reproductions of some of the signs that are you know not very uh, flattering to Walt and stuff and. You know, definitely touches upon that, you know, real dark time uh, for the studio. Uh, so she, she really wanted people to know Walt Disney, the man. The museum covers a lot of that. And a lot of it is in his own words. Some of it is uh, his brother's words. And a lot of it is made up from people who actually knew and worked with him. So a lot of different, uh, you know, angles there, just, just not, you know, his.
0: The Walt Disney Family Museum is doing all that it can but museums across the world have seen declining popularity in recent years. Take a state like Maryland, for example. The Baltimore Museum of Art in the last 15 years has seen a 12% decline in attendance. The Walters Art Museum is down nearly 25% in the last 10 years. And the Maryland African American History and Culture Museum is down a whopping 53% in attendance since it opened in 2005. Those are frightening numbers, and numbers that might be too hard for certain museums to ever bounce back from. A younger generation is learning less from museums and places of historical significance. Instead, they're turning to the internet for their sources. And I don't know if you've been on the internet, but it's information isn't always the most accurate, and the internet's role in spreading mythology and conspiracy theories has become problematic. What was once a what-if case of scenarios has become a group of people swearing upon their firstborn children that what they believe to be real is real. I'll let Jason Tans, a site director for Wired.com, provide some
2: more reasoning behind this. There's one out there for everybody. The JFK assassination, the fake moon landing, the Freemasons, chemtrails, CIA mind control, rigged election, Area 51. Once you get going, it's easy to see secret plots and shadowy cabals everywhere you look. In all of these cases, people can point to evidence disputing some of these claims. The photos of Neil Armstrong on the moon, the Warren Commission report, the studies that keep showing that vaccines work, <laughs> to which you will inevitably hear you think the people who faked the moon landing couldn't gin up a couple of phony photos. Wake up, sheeple! And there's the problem. Any evidence that would seem to contradict the conspiracy is further proof of the conspiracy. It cannot be disproven. Or, to use a term from science, it is not falsifiable. A hypothesis is falsifiable if you could imagine a way to prove it wrong through- An example of falsifiability
0: would be something simple that you could see with your eyes or touch with your hands. Like, if you believed that all swans were white, But one day saw a black swan, you'd be proven wrong about your original statement and you would change your mind. But popular internet conspiracies can't be proven so simply. The other trouble with the internet is that it's given like-minded people a place to reaffirm their beliefs. Groups who believe the earth is flat, for example, can grow and their ideas can gain power. One such conspiracy that's had a large following is the idea that Walt Disney is cryogenically frozen and that he is waiting for the right time to return.
2: Thank God you heard me. I'm Walt Disney. Wow. An audio-animatronic wall. So that's what they've been doing down here. I thought the Johnny Depp one was good. I, surreal. Take your finger off my nose. That was a clip
0: from the independent movie The Further Adventures of Walt's Frozen Head. It's a film by Ben Lancaster about a man who shows Walt Disney a day at Florida's Magic Kingdom after finding his cryogenically preserved head in a box underneath the park. That might sound crazy, but just type it into Google. Pages after pages come up about Walt Disney being frozen. Sometimes with, or sometimes without a head. Sometimes he's in Florida. Other times he's in California. And let's top that off with the fact that the movie Frozen was made to muddle your Google search for the actual truth. That myth only gained popularity when popular YouTuber Shane Dawson covered it in one of his most popular videos ever made
2: i mean think about it Anybody searching Walt Disney Frozen from 2011 and before were only looking to see if Walt Disney had his body or head frozen. So how would Disney hide those search results? By making a worldwide hit film called Disney's Frozen is officially the highest grossing animated movie of all time. I mean, just look at the search results from 2011 and before. Yeah, pages of information about Walt Disney's head possibly being frozen. And then look at the search results now.
0: Okay, I don't want to go down some weird rabbit hole here, but that video? It had over 36 million views within its first two months of being published. I'm not saying that all 36 million people who watched that video now believe in a frozen Walt Disney, but I do have to think that there were a few people turned on to that theory, and would believe it as fact. All of these myths vary in degree between possible and ludicrous, but I want to know if these myths do anything to the real legacy of Walt Disney. Remember when I said that movie was made by Ben Lancaster? Well, I sat down to talk with him
2: about Walt Disney's legacy. Who was the guy who started 20th Century Fox? You know, like can you can you remember his first name? Um, I was gonna use him for an example, and then realized I couldn't remember his first name. Uh, William Fox, maybe? William Harry Fox? I don't know, it was somebody whose last name was Fox. It was William Fox. We have all these people from Hollywood history who made incredible contributions to the art of movie making. Uh, they're, they're forgotten. Um, The mythology has certainly helped uh, serve as an entry point to remembering who Walt Disney was as an artist, as a filmmaker, in a way that not anyone else from his era who maybe even had similar contributions has. Ben's
0: right. Walt Disney is more
2: well-known today
0: than almost any film producer, director, or studio head of the early 20th century just try and think of someone who worked in Hollywood behind the camera that was bigger than Walt Disney. Go ahead, I'll give you a second. It's a tall task to think of someone, right? The myths, no matter how damaging they are to the real spirit of the man, have kept his name in the spotlight for decades after his death. But Will they ever go away? Will they ever truly hurt him? Here's Ben again.
2: Walt was a man of his time, we, you know, he was not the most enlightened individual that, li- that was born in 1901. He was certainly not the most least enlightened individual that was born in 1901. You know, so uh, you can you can rehash a lot of stuff, um, but like most of it's just pure garbage and speculation and things taken way out of context um, as far as the, the really bad accusations. Um, once again, I, I kind of feel like it just kind of comes with the territory. Uh, you know, there's there's that Dark Prince of Hollywood book that came out not too many years after he passed that just had all kinds of ridiculous uh, uh, conspiracy theories in it. And as someone who likes ridiculous conspiracy theories, let me tell you, some of them were were uh, pretty nutso.
0: Mark Elliott's book, Hollywood's Dark Prince, paints Walt Disney in a really negative light. Much of it without any proof or merit. And its publication gave way to a slew of accusations that still live on today, including many of the ideas we talked about in this episode. As people, we just love to create stories, even if they bend the truth way too far. It's almost like we're trying to see how much we can get away with. Walt's mythology still continues to intrigue me. As a fan and historian of Walt, it's kind of a burden. But I can't help but to think that these myths, whether they're good or bad, translate to who we want him to be. If you don't like Walt Disney or any of his movies or the theme parks, of course you're going to associate him with being a racist, sexist Nazi. If you're a fan, maybe you're holding out for that day where you turn on the news to see that his brain has been preserved thanks to a big giant block of ice and some weird science, and he'll be producing a new film next year. Whatever story that you choose to believe, I think it says more about you and your personality than you probably realize. For you, maybe Kanye is the second coming of Christ, or Leonardo da Vinci was part of some underground Illuminati society with Beyonce. Maybe you're more of an optimist and still believe that famed missing person Maura Murray is still out there, alive, living her best life. Whatever the story, it creates a connection between you, that person, and the rest of the world. If that's how we keep those long gone in our society and culture, then so be it. I'd rather have to fight off the myths of Walt Disney than nobody know him at all. Before we end this show, I'd like to give thanks to my wife Angie Taylor for her reading of The Mary Ford Letter. You can find her as part of Network 1901 on our YouTube channel and as a contributor to our weekly show, Podcast 1901. Thanks to Keith Gluck for his expertise all the way from San Francisco. Find more from him at DisneyProject.com. And Ben Lancaster, you can find his film at waltzfrozenhead.com, where you can currently watch his movie completely for free. Visit Network1901.com for more podcasts and videos from myself, Angie, and Shannon. And if you'd like to support us, grab some of our merchandise too. We got amazing shirts and stickers, all kinds of fun stuff. And until next time, thanks for listening and keep on moving people.